Hi, I'm Chuck Quinley. Welcome back to Thread, episode 116. Thread, God's truth tying together all the pieces of your life. Thread is the broadcast of Dr. Chuck Quinley. Thread. Well, this episode of Thread finds the Apostle Paul in Sin City. He has left the um, intellectualism and the thought leadership area of Athens, and he moved just a bit in Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 17, and he moves forward now into a town called Corinth. And Corinth was the cultural center. It was the commercial center. It was full of money, sex, and power, sensual, wealthy, sophisticated, immoral, just the place for counterculture church. And God sends him there, and he's able to birth an amazing work. We're going to learn a lot of lessons today about going on mission and how it all works. Now, Athens had been a place where Paul functioned as a seed sower. He was just there in a virgin area. It was not yet ready for harvest. You have to sow seed before there can be harvest. And these people had heard nothing of the gospel. And there has to be kind of a critical mass that gets reached before a town uh, or a region becomes uh, harvestable. I mean, individuals have their own story and their own influences, but typically when a whole city has had zero penetration of the gospel, you're not going to see an immediate huge embrace of the gospel. You're going to have to watch it filter in until enough people have some background and then some new event will take place and and the harvest will be reached. So in Athens, Paul was content to be a sower of seed and he had full belief that the Holy Spirit was going to make that seed grow and that when the time was ripe, he would send in other servants and Athens would be one day harvested. And he began it with reaching some of the thought leaders and introducing the concepts that are in the kingdom message, and he told it as as widely as he could during the time he was there just to sow the ideas and put the gospel in the ground. He knew it would grow later. From there, according to Acts 18, verse 1, he departed and went to Corinth. And so he's moved now from the thought center to the commercial and the sin center. And we, we're going to learn a lot of lessons here. First lesson I get is that when you go on mission, God has already prepared friends and contacts for you. He meets this couple, Aquila and Priscilla, in verse 2. And they're also Jews. He has so much in common with them. Um, they're a very cool, modern couple with an anointing. And he, uh, he has such a connection with the two of them that they open up their house and they invite him to come in and they invite him also to join in their business. And so they began to do business together. But you know, the first lesson I get is that you're not alone when you show up according to God's hand on your life to start something new. You're not the only person God is dealing with. He's bringing you into connection with others. And we're going to talk a lot more about Aquila and Priscilla in our next episode. Lesson two, bivocational ministry is an ancient pattern. 
Um, in ancient Judaism, it was thought improper to pay a rabbi for his teaching. Rabbis had trades. And uh, I've had the privilege of being able to give my full attention to the ministry, but in the ministry that I've, I have given myself to under the Lord, uh, there's been an element of work there as far as uh, running, a secu- uh, running a seminary, a college institution, and other things that are kind of like a business. In many, many nations, even in, in well-established Christian contexts like the USA, I've seen some r- truly awesome ministry work done by bivocational pastors. Uh, I think something very positive can happen when you when you've had a background in the business world and the marketplace and and the kind of a life that most people live uh, versus if your entire uh, work experience has been uh, in church work. And so Paul is bivocational. Uh, Aquila and Priscilla are bivocational. This is an ancient path as a pattern in the body of Christ, and it still uh, works in many, many countries today. So if you're called by God, and you need to, either you're just told by the Lord to do it, or your circumstances lead you to do it. Uh, don't, don't feel like you're doing anything less if you have a, a job that pays the bills doing one thing, and then you're able to pour your heart into your ministry, and it not necessarily have to be in a form that can support you and support your family. It's wonderful when that is what happens. But it isn't always the case, and many, many people serve the Lord for a lifetime and do a great job in a bivocational context. So Paul returns in Corinth. He returns to his family faith context, the Jewish synagogue, and he begins to go there week after week, and he gently guides many of them into the faith about Jesus Christ. Well, why does Paul keep going back to the synagogue? Well, for the first reason, the gospel came and was supposed to come first to the Jews. It came through them. They have been carrying God's torch for thousands of years. They were the ones that brought the whole concept of monotheism to the world, that there there aren't hundreds, thousands, millions of gods. There's one God, the almighty God, creator of everything. And the Jews suffered greatly for for this doctrine, and they have preserved it, and they have carried it, and they are Abraham's seed, and God uses them, and he brings the gospel through them. A second reason is related to what I said about the harvest in Athens, and that is that you need a certain level of uh, awareness before you can generally make a, an intelligent decision about accepting the gospel. And the people in the synagogue already knew that there was one God. They knew his name was Jehovah. They knew the promises that he had made concerning the world. They had the whole scriptures before them to help them understand that God was sending Messiah, and Messiah has to suffer, and having suffered, he must be raised from the dead, and he will be placed in an exalted position, and he will pay for the sins of the people. And all these things were in their existing scriptures, They gathered to worship accurately the one true God every week, and they came to sing to Him and to worship Him and to live according to His ways. So, I mean, they were already so close to understanding and to receiving the gospel, and they were. it was the first place 
to go if you were trying to find people who were, uh, in a sense, pre-evangelized. The synagogue was the place where Gentile God-fearers could be found, who had also been educated in Judaism, and so their hearts were prepared and their minds were filled with correct thinking about God, and, and it was an easier step for them to fully become aware and to understand. So there was, there was a presence there, and there was an anointing on God's Word that these people had already come under. And so Paul was looking for winnable, harvestable people. He never knew how long he would be able to stay in a town. He knew that he was going to push until a fire started, and sometimes he could stay even longer, but many times it would become, there'd be such a pushback on him that he was going to have to leave town. And so he just did his best work in the most intelligent way that he could find. He was looking for winnable people, and he wanted to spend his time with them. Lesson three uh, comes to me in verse five, and it says that, notice that Paul's been on his own since he had to leave Silas and Timothy behind. And, uh, you know, once Paul had had left Berea, uh, he was on his own. And so now his brothers come back to him, and Silas and Timothy join him. And when they join him, something happens to him. Their physical presence somehow affects Paul's anointing in an amazing way, and we need to think about this. It says in verse 5 that after Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit. Uh, It doesn't say that Paul made a strategic decision as though in an intellectual way. It says he was compelled by the Spirit as he dealt with uh, the Jewish context that he was in every, every week as he was going among those in the synagogue But it says, when these two brothers came back, it did something to him. And his spirit rose up when their spirit came near him. Uh, I get the sense that what I'm being told is there's somehow these, these three brothers, all anointed, all unified, but when they get close to each other, even in their bodies, when by proximity they get near each other, it has a very positive impact on the Apostle Paul. It's like something gets combined and a a strength surges up inside of him that he did not have when they were absent from him. You know, Paul is pulling the load all by himself, but then these brothers step back into the picture, and when they come physically close to him, his spirit rises up. And I think this is telling us that we need strong, missions-minded friends and a church home that that fits the calling that God has on your life. And if that church home only has, uh, you know, five people in it, that still counts. I mean, these guys, it was two men in a whole city, and it was enough to make Paul's spirit rise up. So we need the presence of other godly people, and it will do something. It will, it will strengthen us when they are near. The fourth lesson I see comes in verse 6. It says that after Paul's spirit was compelled and he began to boldly testify to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ, verse 6 says, they opposed him and began to blaspheme. So they're now, uh, they're blaspheming Christ. They're saying things that are cruel and harsh 
and injurious about Jesus. And up to this point, they may have been uh, disagreeing with Paul with Paul's doctrine about Jesus, but they were not uh, blaspheming. They weren't. They, they're crossing a line, and it it angers him, but it also troubles him because once people start to do that, they they get used to hearing themselves say it, and it's kind of like they've released this negativity in them, and that's why Jesus told us when you're dealing with people that start doing that as you're trying to share faith and they are so they're not just uh, resistant but they are blasphemous about it they're hostile about it they're they're starting to mouth off and speak very hard things do them a favor and spare yourself a lot of grief and Jesus said you move on you don't keep pushing when that situation happens because they're not listening and in this case, Paul understands further contact uh, with this synagogue. If he keeps going there every week, all it's going to be from that point on is conflict. And for, he's not afraid, afraid of conflict as long as it's yielding good fruit, but further conflict with that synagogue um, is not going to produce good fruit. Now, he, this, the synagogue belongs to God. It doesn't belong to them anyway. It isn't their club. It is the gathering together of God's people. And uh, But he knows, I'm not going to accomplish anything. So he stops attending that synagogue. And he tells them, all right, that's it. I'm going to Gentiles. Now, some people take this like it was his final decision and he never went back to synagogue. And we're going to see that it's the very next thing he does. Every time he goes to a new town, same pattern. Uh, so he's not saying, I will never go to synagogue again. I'm not going to have Jewish uh, friends. He's saying, uh, you guys won't see me back in synagogue anymore here. I won't keep troubling you. Uh, if you don't want to hear it, I don't want to talk to you about it anymore. And Paul begins a house gathering with a mixed multitude of Jews and Gentile believers, and this is the church, the ecclesia. And that leads me to lesson five, and which is to say the fastest and best way to spread the gospel to a new people group is to plant a church. Listen, faith needs a protected context of unity. Now, we need out in the marketplace this public battle for the truth, and we need preaching, and we need declaration. That's a necessary first step, and we have to keep doing it. But in the end, somebody needs to plant a church if you want to conserve the fruit of this evangelism. And this is a, a very unique church, and it's made possible in part because of the cosmopolitan nature of Corinth. All different kinds of people are used to being with each other and working together, and so the strict Jewish legalistic view about Gentiles and mixing with other kinds of people, that's absent from these people. Now, they have a very strong Jewish core. In fact, the synagogue pastor, Crispus, believes, and he joins this new circle. He's an influencer, and it's really key when God touches the heart of an influencer. That is an amazing uh, moment of potential. And in Corinth, Crispus believes. Not only Crispus, but his whole family believes. He was a man who loved God already. He cared for God's people already. And Crispus enters the ministry as his vocation, and he's referred to by Paul in Corinthians and Paul says, oh yes, I did baptize Crispus and his whole family. 
Uh, also, it's a Gentile church, and we're told that Justice opened his home and allowed them to have worship in it. Justice, it seems, is a Gentile. So uh, verse 8 says, Many Corinthians, after hearing, believed. So you can't expect them to just believe. you got to pump out the message. They've got to be able to hear the message. And if they can hear the message, it will it will bear fruit. You know, people don't just come to the Lord because their heart warms one day and they go to the Lord. A message has to reach them, and this message compels them, and it encourages them, and it draws them, and the Word of God does its work in hearts. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God that brings salvation. So, you know, the gospel works, and the gospel is God's message, and Paul knows that he needs to help the Corinthian people hear that message and believe. But, you know, Paul's history tells him that every time he starts to broadcast widely, something bad happens to him. You know, if he stays in the public eye for too long and he pushes and pushes and pushes, the spiritual darkness pushes back, and Paul ends up beaten up and in jail and having trouble. And I don't know if in the back of his mind this worry starts to creep in. Um, I'm not sure, but I know that in verse 9 we get our, our next lesson because God speaks to him. And lesson 6 tells me there's only one priority you need to focus on at a time. When you try to, f- to focus on too many things, you go cross-eyed. You just can't you know, focus on it. That's, the whole, that's what the meaning of the word focus is, is that you quit looking at every other thing and you only look at one thing. And, you know, it would be really easy to get paralyzed in Corinth with all that there is to do. There's injustice, there's the sex trade going on, there's the love of money, there's the abuse of power, and so you could become an activist, and then there's counseling for all these people that are coming to Christ and they need to be healed, and so you could become a counselor, and then there's, you know, there's just so many different things that need to be done, and God helps Paul in verse 9. He says, do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not keep silent, because I am with you, number one, and number two, no one will attack you or hurt you, because number three, I have many people in this city. So God speaks to Paul and says, this is bold preaching time. You keep going out, you keep evangelizing, and don't be afraid. This thing is working. You know, so often we get, we get things moving, and then maybe we get a little resistance, or we just get tired, and then we draw back. And when we draw back, things stop. You know, like you, you do the hard work to get it rolling, and then you back off a little bit, and sure enough, inertia sets in, and the whole train comes back to rest. And, you know, it's a problem. Paul had momentum. God had momentum. And it was time to push it. You know, Sherry and I planted, the last church we planted was in a time with tremendous harvest in Metro Manila. And uh, God spoke to me in the shower one night, and he said, build my church and build it now. And we planted a church within a couple of weeks, and we pushed through on that because it was a unique opportunity. And, you know, that was an exhausting season for me. I ended up speaking, when you counted all the training I was doing, all the home Bible studies, 
and all the Sunday preachings and all the evangelistic outreaches, I was speaking on an average 13 times a week. And I did that for probably five years. Uh, It was just exhausting. But I knew I'd never seen anything like it. I mean, it was... It, there was a new church planted every eight hours, and this went on for a decade. Uh, there were articles against against the growth of the born-again movement in the newspapers. So it was like, what an environment. But I remember, I can't remember the day, but I remember the couple of months when the whole environment changed and things really cooled down and nationwide. And so if I hadn't been obedient to God when He said, build my church and build it now... Uh, I don't know what kind of church lighthouse would have been, but because we started when we started, we had great momentum throughout the great harvest of the 1990s in the Philippines. And so we were able to, to reach that harvest. So it's really important to keep your focus on one thing. And when you get in a season where the harvest is ripe, you, I'm sorry, you just can't rest much in those days. You're going to have to have your Sabbath day you know, always keep that schedule where you got that one day a week that you totally chill out and uh, sleep late, eat good food. And if really, if you're not keeping a Sabbath, you need to institute a Sabbath. Uh, Jesus had time for naps, and so we do too. Uh, but we need to strengthen ourselves. But there are times that it's harvest time, and, you know, you watch farmers because I'm surrounded by farmers where I live here. And when the crops are in the field and the crops are growing, there's not so much for them to do. They have a kind of work, but it's not too much too much on them. I see they have a lot of free time and a lot of time to catch up with each other and mend things and prepare things. But when it's harvest time, man, it's all hands on deck. They get out there in those fields, and it's, you just don't stop working. You've got to get the harvest in. Okay, final lesson, lesson number seven. God is present with you in your legal battles, and he will use them for his kingdom's advantage. Uh, I have been attacked legally. Our church has been attacked legally at different times, and one time especially, uh, it actually turned into a court case that lasted for years, and one of our brothers in the church uh, bore the weight of that legal battle because it was aimed at him, but on our behalf, And, uh, you know, God is present in this. In this case, in Paul's case, uh, verse 12 to 17 tells the story of, because Paul's staying there 18 months, they're building a great work, and his opponents rise up, and he is attacked by the synagogue group. And they have a new synagogue leader, his name is Sosthenes, and they go before uh, Gallio, and he's to be their judge. Now, Gallio is the brother of Seneca, who was a very uh, notable Roman politician. And uh, so they go before Gallio, and they file charges against Paul, and Paul's leading attacker is the new synagogue ruler. And as Paul opens his mouth to defend himself, the judge defends him. And then a a kind of uh, anti-Semitism, racism, rises up in the courthouse, and in the courtroom, and the people turn and start beating up the, uh, the leader of the synagogue. There's a grudge they have against this group, and this synagogue group never troubles the church again, as far as the records go. God was present in those legal battles, and he used it for his kingdom's 
advantage. I found myself on the witness stand one day uh, in a trial, and the judge turned to the stenographer and said, uh, okay, stop typing, and she did. And he turned to me and he said, what's so great about heaven anyway? And we had a conversation uh, about what was so great <laughs> about heaven. The Lord is there and, and what the new world order is all about. Well, Crispus, the synagogue ruler who believed, eventually became the shepherd of western Turkey in an area called Bithynia, uh, Chalcedon, that area. And he, according to legend and tradition, is martyred for his faith. Quill and Priscilla have a huge ministry, more on that later. Multiplication growth is all happening because of the dynamic environment of Corinth and Paul's obedience to God's voice and his tireless work there. 18 months of focused work, but wow, what a legacy. Well, that's all we got for Thread today. I would love to hear from you. Please send me your emails. I'll let you have my personal email address, chuck at quinley.com. Please uh, help tell your friends about Thread Podcast. If you just go quinley.com slash love, that'll open up your Facebook account with uh, if you're logged in. Uh, with a page there so you can make a post, let people know you're listening to the Thread Podcast and encourage them to do so. Also, please give us a rating on the iTunes network. And hey, if you haven't subscribed to the Thread, why don't you do that? Just go to quinley.com and you'll see on the left, Q-U-I-N-L-E-Y.com. You'll see on the page there the ability to subscribe to the Thread Podcast. And once you subscribe... You'll get an email every time we post a new podcast. It'll come right to your inbox. It'll have the link, and you'll be able to keep up with the new editions of the Thread Podcast every other week, year-round, bringing you God's Word, tying all the pieces of your life together. Well, that's all for now. See you next time on Thread. Thread is the broadcast of Dr. Chuck Quinley. Log on to Quinley.com.